Hello and welcome to Man with a Movie podcast. My name's Daniel and I'm joined by my co-host Linus. And today we're talking about what is the biggest Oscar snub in this season, which happens to be Cocaine Bear, in my opinion. Really should have gone Best Picture, Director, um, Cinematography, everything. Um, well, actually, I've heard my co-host is telling me this is not actually the episode that we had in mind. Um, why don't you why don't you introduce it yourself, since it seems like you have maybe a better idea. I can't imagine what that would be. Yeah, I, you know, I you know me. I hate to disappoint people, but unfortunately, we're not going to be talking about Cocaine Bear today. Or I mean, we can, but maybe, maybe, maybe at some later point in the in the episode. And instead, we'll be we'll be ranking a bunch of film movements today, but we'll be ranking them on a specific criteria. We'll be ranking them based on how accessible they are to someone who maybe is is not necessarily brand new to film, but maybe someone who's uh, who's watching a lot of like modern day releases, keeping up with like the the big awards, like uh, big film festivals, and wants to see something uh, some some older films, explore certain certain film movements. Uh, so we'll be taking a look at a few of these movements, and we'll try to rank them and see how how we feel how accessible they are, basically. Yeah, I think we have a few ground rules or like parameters for this ranking we got to establish first. Um, so I guess when we're talking about accessibility, whom are we thinking of in mind? So are we, I guess I'll pass it to you, but uh, are you thinking someone who already has like some familiarity with these or just someone completely new to this entirely? Yeah, I tried to almost, uh, so since I studied uh, film studies in university I essentially got essentially like thrown in the deep end and I got like uh, got to explore some of well not necessarily explore but I got a first taste of some of these movements while it was still pretty pretty fresh to film pretty green I wasn't too familiar with most of them when I was sort of introduced to them in university so I'm coming coming at almost from that similar point of view like someone who who has maybe seen some older films uh, but doesn't necessarily watch them regularly. Uh, mainly just watches, like I said, new releases. Uh, but wants to actually wants to seek out a movement. Wants to pick out a movement. And I essentially want to want to discuss and figure out which of these movements would be the best starting point, and which you maybe should save for later, or go 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 in, but be a bit a bit careful with what films you sort of pick and choose. Yeah, and I have one mother. It might sound like a joke, but I have one other question is, are you thinking of, like, the modern, like, Zoomer generation, <laughs> the people that have, like, no attention span, um, which is somewhat <laughs> what I've been thinking of, maybe because all of our attention spans have been kind of on the decline, but, uh, I mean, it's it's a little hard to think about, at least for me, like, a, a single type of person who's new to film, um, because I feel like my ratings, rankings for all these movements will completely change depending on what people are already, mm. uh, you know, exposed to in other yeah. arts or have what other hobbies and things they do. If someone's completely like a casual film watcher and doesn't really engage in arts, I'd have completely different ratings from someone who is <laughs> like deep into like music and yeah. paintings and whatnot, and then is just starting film for the first time. So, I guess, well, what's your take on that? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know the the I, I do sort of take the Zoomer generation into consideration as well with the melted attention spans. Uh, n- not necessarily because I think like oh that's that's the person who I'm making this sort of tier list in mind, but 
I do think, especially for someone who's maybe more used to watching contemporary films, like contemporary American films specifically, they are a bit, a bit maybe faster than some of the European films. Like recently, I rewatched the Orson Welles documentary, The Arena, where he he himself is sort of interviewed throughout the entire documentary, and I remember he said at at one point in time that in his films. Uh, one of his strengths, like as he describes it himself, was that he always knew when to uh, when to end a shot. And when he contrasted himself with like European filmmakers, he said, "Oh, their their takes go like on and on and on." Because you know, famously, <laughs> Orson Welles didn't really like a lot of like European films. Uh, so I I do think that's like a factor, like the actual the amount of sort of. Uh, the amount of attention and maybe other things that you have to dedicate to actually enjoy some of the films here, that was definitely a factor that I took into into consideration when, when mm-hmm. grading these. What would Orson Welles think? That's always a good question <laughs> myself about anything. Uh, for, for, uh, for, um, for somebody who has never had like the, the delight of, of hearing Orson talk about other filmmakers... Do look up like one of those one of those threads on Twitter where people have just compiled all the stuff he has said about other directors, because he is for the, for the most part just absolutely roasting them. But the roasts are, are hilarious. It's one of the funniest things you'll ever yeah. read. <laughs> oh man, yeah, he's such a great speaker. Like, I, I, there are directors obviously who hate each other, and they're a lot more blunt and I mm. guess I don't know what's the word like mean about it than. Orson can take down someone, but say it in like somehow the most grandiose, eloquent way possible. Still, so he sure, still comes yeah. off incredibly charming. So it's it's kind of unfair. But um, I digress. Uh, okay, so I think we have a somewhat rough, at least, idea of whom we're recommending to. Yeah. What we're trying to do. Why don't we? What sort of grades? What What are some of these tiers that we're trying to rank these into? Yeah, so the tiers, we have five tiers for this. The A tier, or like the top tier, would be everyone would love this. So this is a movement that literally anyone, like the the aforementioned Zoomer, could jump into. And I think they would find some stuff that they would genuinely love. Uh, The next tier below that, the B tier, is titled Fun to Explore. So maybe has has some duds. Some people might struggle a bit with this, maybe... It requires some buy-in from the viewer, but most of the stuff in the movement is really fun to watch, and it's it's an easy movement to engage with. Then the C tier can be challenging. It's not necessarily all all the stuff isn't super challenging, but some stuff can be challenging, and it requires more from the from the audience to actually engage with the movement. Maybe you have to know a bit more history, a bit more trivia. Maybe you really have to understand how it influenced other films to get the most out of engaging with this movement. And that's why it can be a bit challenging. Then the tier below that, the D tier, is uh, probably safe for later, uh, which is essentially just... You, you can start with this movement, but you would get a lot more out of it if you if you engage with this movement a lot later in your sort of cinema journey, where maybe you have already familiarized yourself with certain other movements. And that's when you sort of delved into this movement and you would probably get a lot more out of it. And then the final tier is the E tier, which is do not start with this movement. So this this is sort of saved saved for those movements where if 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 you if if you're sort of delving into your first film movement and you're for the first time exploring some older cinema and you decide to start here for whatever reason, you would probably just 
just get burnt out on, on films as a whole for, for a little while. So this is also almost like a save for later, but a more extreme save for later. Yeah, it's just like the American grading system, A, B, C, D, um, and E. Mm. Uh, well, I've, I've always been wondering why they skipped E and went to F. But <laughs> True. But anyways. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, more or less, yeah, just descending order of accessibility. Um, so we have, it looks like seven movements we're going to talk about in this yep. episode. We think have, there are obviously a lot more than seven yeah, film movements definitely. Uh, in the history of film. Uh, and we might revisit, we might add on to this um, and rank them uh, later. But I guess to keep this a more compact podcast, we started with hmm. seven, so seven of the more most well-known. Yeah, for say. sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, and uh, I guess it would also mm-hmm. be worth mentioning that we... So, movements, anyone who has done like any research into film that will know that movements can be quite a contentious topic like even film genres can get quite contentious sometimes but movements in particular like a good example would be the french new wave where there's all these there are there are all these people that were supposedly part of the french new wave but then if you look into it a bit there's actually like a divide in the french new wave where like half the filmmakers are actually part of what's called the left bank movement even though they all sort of came up at the same exact time so it gets really confusing with some of these movements like Sometimes a filmmaker is is making films in, in the exact time frame that the movement is taking place, but he's just excluded from the movement because usually the people who come up with the movement definitions aren't the filmmakers themselves. It's just like some film journalist, some film critic who just like combines people, finds some similarities between them and calls it a movement, and that's how they usually come to be. So we're going to be taking quite a, like a liberal definition to some of these movements, and if there's like any people who are like, mm, does he belong here? Does he not? We're just gonna say that, yeah, probably does. We'll just we'll rake him in here. Come on in, <laughs> everyone's welcome. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. We'll we'll discuss like all the I guess the major figures that we're yeah thinking of when we when we consider these movements. Movements also are sometimes like a marketability term, um, especially when we start getting into the waves, like the new waves of yeah X country. Uh, you know, uh, they just happen to be contemporaneous filmmakers, even sometimes not even all that contemporaneous in terms of when they actually started. Um, but uh, still, they're sometimes just grouped together because they worked at the same country and roughly the same period, but might not have anything else really in common. Uh, but it's okay. Mm. Um, yeah, for sure. Uh, so how should we talk? Like, we have seven movements. Mm. Should we go chronologically? Yeah, I think let's go in chronological order. So the first the first movement that we have here is New Hollywood Cinema, which is the movement that started roughly in the late 60s, and it's most famous for filmmakers such as Corsese, Cassavetes, Sidney Lumet, uh, Francis Ford Coppola, Friedkin... Uh, some Kubrick films are, are considered to be New Hollywood cinema films. George Lucas is another New Hollywood cinema guy. This is this is definitely one of the largest movements out there because it encompasses so many names. Uh, since American cinema had such a such a big revival thanks to this movement, and some of the key films of the movement as well would include films such as like Taxi Driver, Godfather Part One, and even something like the the original Star Wars films as well. They would also be considered New Hollywood cinema. And the key key characteristics of this movement is that essentially uh, Hollywood after the Golden Age, which was like 40s, 50s, it kind of experienced uh, a few years of decline where a lot of their like sort of big budget 
blockbuster films kept sort of failing at the box office. So essentially what they did is when they noticed the success that uh, French New Wave films were having in France and the Italian and post-neorealism films were having in Italy, a lot of the filmmakers uh, in the new Hollywood cinema took some of those ideas from there, which were particularly to make films about anti-heroes and deal with these sort of darker themes, darker and grittier themes, especially uh, a big factor that came into play was also sort of the end and decline of the Hays Code, which sort of freed up the possibilities to actually tackle some of these darker themes for these filmmakers. And that formed essentially the basis of this movement. Yeah, just so the viewer's not confused, well, uh, when uh, we were discussing chronological order, uh, we actually just ended up going in the order of honor sheet here. So it's uh, yeah, there will be older movements in this. Um, it'll be like a non-linear art house film. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, true. Um, yeah, but yeah, the the new Hollywood uh, cinema era was definitely a really radical thing because. Um, you know, you had the Hays Code, which was, you know, very restrictive, very backwards kind of in the Puritan kind of things that it was enforcing on filmmakers. Um, and then that very much eroded by the time the 60s rolled around and yeah. culture was changing. You had uh, violence and sexuality appearing in more and more uh, cinema until this film called Bonnie and Clyde was released in 67 and mm. kind of blew the doors off that and, and things were not the same yeah like for people who was out of the bottle <laughs> yeah for people who are not aware if you've ever watched like a 40s film and you were wondering why is it that like for instance a husband and wife they go to bed and they like go to bed in separate separate beds if you ever wonder why that's the case that's actually not a 40s thing it's just a, a thing because of the Hays code like they, they place such sort of restrictions on films that they couldn't really show any Anything that was like too violent, too sexual, all of that was was forbidden. And new Hollywood cinema broke broke a lot of those grounds. That when you look at the films like Taxi Driver, Godfather Part One, obviously they deal like with really twisted, dark characters and a lot darker themes than any of the films that were like in the fifties or the forties and whatnot. Definitely, yeah. And you mentioned the kind of later new Hollywood films. Uh, the earlier ones are quite interesting as well. And I'm I'm kind of wondering like I have an overall grade. But some of these earlier films, like Bonnie and Clyde, The Wild hmm. Bunch, Easy Rider, even two thousand one, like these are almost like of a very almost of a different stripe than like yeah the Star Wars, Taxi Driver, Jaws of types of films, which are I think the budgets increased dramatically from like late sixties to the the seventies, and that's partly why the these films uh, became like bigger, more epic. Uh, yeah, general, yeah, for sure. It, this kind of started as like. Uh, as, as it's kind of a reoccurring theme with all these movements, but kind of there's just this kind of group of nobodies with no money mm. or experience who are just making movies. Um, um, yeah, any and one book recommendation. Anyone who's interested in this movement uh, should should check out. It's a famous book, but Easy Riders, Raging Bulls uh, by Peter Biskin mm. uh, goes into a lot of kind of insane <laughs> uh, stories and you know details about what was happening in this period. Um, so why don't we move into our overall grades? Um, mm, yeah, I can go first. Uh, yeah, go ahead. I I mean, I gave this an A. Uh, uh, it's extremely accessible. Um, good luck finding a more well beloved movement. I think <laughs> of these groups, especially among people who are new to film. Uh, so I mean, there are definitely movements people would like more. I'm just saying that this one probably has the highest rate of success. Um, you know, just think about the widespread love of Star Wars or yeah. The Godfather or Taxi Driver. Um, 
I know I was certainly watching a lot of these when I was getting introduced to film. And I, would, I think a lot of people do too. What, how about you? Yeah, I also think this would be the A tier that everyone would love this. And I do think everyone would love this. And I think so for a couple of reasons. One is that just the variety of films and directors is absolutely insane in this movement. Like, yes, I know I really focused on like the, the, the darker ones that focus on the anti-heroes, but those aren't the only types of film. Like Star Wars isn't that kind of film. It's just like a sci-fi film. But also like you have Kubrick films. Some of them also snuck into new Hollywood cinema. You have someone like Sidney LeMay who also sort of reinvented his style because he was someone who, uh, who also made films on sort of the, the latter end of the golden age. And he sort of changed up his style and he came out of a film like Dog Day Afternoon where he, he sort of was part of those first few people who were breaking ground in the new Hollywood cinema and really have just such insane variety of films and directors that I do think like everyone would genuinely love this and they would find something in this movement to love. Like even if you don't like uh, Scorsese and you like the sort of slower, more European type of film, you might really like Cassavetes. Like he did that thing in, in new Hollywood cinema. If you know you're you're not really messing with with Coppola, you might really like Friedkin and the the you know the thrillers that he did in this in this time period. So I do think just ver- the sheer variety and the amount of directors and films that it encompasses is is really why it's almost like the the benchmark for the for the everyone would love this tier. But also another big reason for me is that starting with this, the reason why I think this movement is such a great starting point is that it's it's a good basis to see why some of the other movements, some of the older movements, are considered influential. Because this is the movement where you will see a lot of that influence. Like, if you start with this and then you go into French New Wave or Italian post-neorealism later, you'll see exactly how those Italian or French films influence some of the people in this movement. Then that's why I think this is like a really great starting point for people. So that's a pretty good segue to our next movement. Um, and since we don't abide by the rules of chronology here, <laughs> uh, we just go freely backwards to the French New Wave. Yeah, so the French French New Wave is, is, is a film movement that started sort of at the very end of 50s, like 59, 58, and it lasted up until 1967. It's obviously most famous for people like Godard, Truffaut, Chabrol, Agnes Varda, Louis Malle, but also there were some of like left bank filmmakers such as such as Resnais, someone who we briefly spoke about in, in our previous podcast. And obviously a ton of key films like Breathless, 400 Blows, Cleo from 5 to 7, Le Mepris, etc. And one of, probably one of the most influential movements of all time. Yeah, so a lot of these guys were actually not even filmmakers. Like, they were just a bunch of young cinephiles mm-hmm. uh, and who people just loved movies. And they wrote about movies before they did anything else. They were all uh, part of André Bazin's journal called Cahiers du Cinéma. A mm-hmm. lot of them, François Truffaut, Godard, Chabrol, Rivette, Romer. Um, and they were all major directors later on. Um and I guess the one one big thing that came out of that journal, as I think some people know, is the auteur theory. Um, yeah, uh, it was actually developed by Andre Alexandre uh, Astruc, uh, who, who kind of formulated the concept of the camera pen, basically as like the filmmaker as a kind of writer um, in light, someone who is the author but in the audiovisual medium. Mm. Uh, the and it's it's basically just saying that the best films are the ones that have this kind of personal artistic expression. Of the filmmaker, and this was a movement that had really like lots of lots of directors, hundreds of films, and and it was a really short like 
between the around 1960 to 65 was really like kind of the main period of this this movement. Um, I guess 59. There, uh, three of those guys that I mentioned had their future debuts in, in 59, um, and they were all they were all like this fresh new style um, that basically were destructive of like classic Hollywood shooting with handheld cameras, um, elliptical editing, um, meta like cinema techniques, things like that. Yeah, like for for people who don't know, like a big reason why the movement started as well is that a lot of these guys, as as Daniel mentioned, were film critics or they wrote for like a film magazine, and they were quite dissatisfied with with American cinema of the time, so they just started sort of doing their own film with these like eight millimeter cameras. And the big reason why this this movement ended so quickly because they were all so successful that actually what ha- what ended up happening is that American cinema essentially cannibalized that style. And they started doing it themselves, and that's what spawned new Hollywood cinema, and that's where sort of French New Wave came came to an end because a lot of people like Godard and Truffaut just got really discouraged by that and ended up leaving the movement. And then some some other people like Romero or Rivet just started uh, essentially moving in a different direction out of their own volition. Yeah, exactly. So, what did you grade this as? I I know this one was <laughs> this was definitely a bit tougher than the New Hollywood for me at least. So, an interesting bit of trivia. This was actually the movement that I started with in in university. This was the very first movement that we studied, and it was the first movement that I decided to do like a little little deep dive in. And when after after we sort of discussed it in in in, in the lectures, I essentially just watched one film from all all the big big people. I watched uh, Elevator to the Gallows from Male. I watched Breathless from Godard. I watched Four Hundred Blows, Clear from Five to Seven. And a, and a few other films, just like essentially one film from Resnais as well, one film from all the all the big names. And I think this movement, for me, it's probably like a C tier. I think it can certainly be quite challenging, if not even a safe for later. I think the big reason is that uh, one of the great things about this movement is that the history of it is super interesting with how it came about with all the things that sort of innovated in and how it sort of came to an end once once American cinema started cannibalizing a lot of the a lot of the ideas in the movement and also just seeing all these people who ended up having like super long and interesting careers have a start all at this one sort of period of time. But I think some of the films can be quite quite hit or miss, even like uh, between someone like Godard, he famously never used any scripts in his films. So it's like for for every dud he has one masterpiece so it's like totally hit or miss what you end up getting with 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 Godard but also just with some of the other people and I think another big reason why for me this is like a like a C tier can be challenging film movement is because when I think of French French cinema as a whole I think this is like one of the least accessible time periods in terms of the films that were made because even though some people like Agnes Varda or Romero or Rivette got got a start in the French uh, French New Wave, I think they really came into their own and started making uh, cinema that I think is a bit more accessible a lot later on. And then actually some films that uh, from some French films that came before the French New Wave, I think are also maybe a bit more accessible to to a modern audience. Like I think certainly a lot of modern audience would uh, would have no. <laughs> No issues, I think, enjoying like a French poetic realism film from the 40s or even something like a Bresson film from the 50s because those were also like super, super engaging and easy to enjoy. Whereas uh, the films in the French New Wave, like 
there's certain things about them that require maybe a bit more bind. They're they're not necessarily slower, but they're very very style forward, and some of them are a bit like more meandering in plot, and they can be a slightly more challenging to enjoy to someone who's maybe just trying to experience a film movement for the first time. Yeah, did you say Brisson in the fifties was enjoyable? Yeah, you know, I, I think so, to be honest, because I, I think the big thing with Brisson is that, uh, yes, he made art house films, but uh, I think a lot of the things that he sort of innovated upon are like the basis for a very suspenseful, suspenseful thrillers of like the 60s and 70s, like particularly a, a film like A Man Escaped. It's super suspense, suspenseful and super tense, and I think a lot of a lot of modern audience actually wouldn't have too much difficulty enjoying that film. Okay, yeah, I guess I was thinking more of his like austere films. Uh, I, I guess he was developing this austere style mm. around the fifties. So, I, I, you know, I I would also put a lot of those in the very difficult, <laughs> a more <laughs> difficult tier of, of cinema than. Uh, maybe a newcomer would be ready for uh, at least certainly me I'm just thinking about my own own experience Um, I did love A Man Escaped I think when I first saw it but then I struggled more with things like I know it was a later film but but Balthazar um, uh, yeah I I think his pocket 60s output definitely gets gets a bit more challenging but I think his 50s output is is pretty pretty easy to get into I think Pickpocket was also not not very digestible for me when I saw Mm. it um, but, but yeah, back to the Bresson is kind of a, an adjacent figure to the French New Wave. Um, yeah. So, back to the New Wave as as a whole. Um, I actually I landed on the same rating, which was a C. Um, and I think here's the thing about the French New Wave. I think if you explore it enough, I think you'll find like one director. Even if you're a newbie, you'll, you'll yeah. find like one director you'll probably really like because everyone's so different. Um, everyone has their own eccentric style. Even I'm just thinking of someone like Jacques Demy, who would appeal to like anyone who's seen La La Land would probably really like. Yeah, who, who's seen and like La La Land, I should say, I would probably really like Jacques Demy, who's a big inspiration for that film. He does all these colorful musicals. Um, but then you know, I think like Resné and um, Godard are probably two of the more difficult names of the yeah. new wave. And I like if you take an average of all these people like i think it averages to around a c um i think all everyone i think your approach was honestly pretty good where you, you like watched one of all of the major figures yeah <laughs> um, i think that's really because it's everyone's so different uh, yeah and you know kind of very important to film history so i really i really think yeah watching like breathless and 400 blows and cleo from five to seven um you know all of those getting just a good sampler of, of every one style and um, filmmaking is, is I think, important. Um, yeah, and and I think another big thing about the French New Wave is that it's it's a movement where the more you know about film history and the more you know about the films that the French New Wave influenced, the more you're going to actually get get out of this movement, which is why I think it is almost like a a perfect movement that you that you sort of enjoy maybe as your second movement or your third movement or like slightly later down the line and slightly just delay uh sort of experiencing those french new wave uh films because you'll, you'll just be able to recognize more and like i said one of one of the great joys of the french new wave is actually just learning the learning the history and what all these people sort of went on to do later after it mm. yeah agreed it's definitely like the most i think of all of these movements the most influential uh, but a little hard to quantify sure um 
Why don't we move on to another movement? If we continue on our sheet, we're going to go backwards in time again. <laughs> so we have um, German Expressionism as the third movement here. I'm actually not sure how we ordered these on the sheet here. Um, it's very strange. <laughs> it was kind of just entirely uh, random. I was just, just thinking, oh, okay, what, what movements would be interesting to talk about? And I just listed them randomly. Uh, yeah, I think I think the order works well enough. I, I think it parallels how people get into films where it's kind of a random assortment of things. True, true. <laughs> figure out, piece it together, the influence and everything later. So I think it's okay. Um, yeah, so, so German Expressionism. How much German Expressionist films have you seen? I'll be honest, not that many. I've seen, I've seen a, a couple. Well, not a couple. I've seen a few. So uh, German Expressionism was another was another movement that I studied in university. Actually, I think pretty much all of these are. There's two here that I didn't study in university, but all the other ones I, I did. So I had that like sort of first-hand raw experience with it. And uh, uh, for those who don't know, German Expressionism is primarily a 1920s film movement, and it's a German movement of all like the silent films. So it includes people like Murnau, Fritz Lang, and most famously films like Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, who's now over 100 years old, Nosferatu, Metropolis, Der Golem, etc. This is an interesting movement. It, so it's the oldest one we have here. It yeah. was... So Germany at, at this point in time is kind of interesting because this was following World War I. Um, and this was, if you remember the way film was made, it was made from the same chemicals used to make gunpowder. Um, yep. So... European cinema kind of dipped following World War One because of the kind of trade-off between should we make movies or should we make gunpowder, basically. Um, America cinema prospered, on the other hand, and kind of got, was like really dominant <laughs> overall. Um, so there was like a huge German effort in the 20s to, uh, to basically pump up their own cinema. Um, they merged the kind of uh, German production, distribution, and exhibition, like all these different companies into a single like conglomerate hmm. that's subsidized by the government um, uh, during the Weimar Republic. So this was like a big golden age where they got lots of big, big ambitious films. Um, you know, they pumped money to a lot of their artistic directors. Um, so yeah, the, the, one, the names you mentioned, like Murnau and Lang, uh, definitely the two big names of this. Hmm. It's really like... German Expressionism nowadays, like it's it's still kind of like unlike a lot of these, um, like French New Wave is, I guess there there are characteristics that thread all of those films together, I suppose. But German Expressionism, like it has a really distinct style. Um, that, oh yeah, that is shared between Lang and Murnau, where they use light and shadow and like unconventional angles, um, uh, performances that are really exaggerated, um, oh, like focus on like emotions and more so than like truth um you know these this was a movement that was trying to depict what like the human soul was was about not necessarily like what was uh what was real like you'll we'll go into more realistic movements yeah. um shortly after this but yeah this was this is the most like stylized least realistic movement i think i would say of all of these yeah for for those who don't know like expressionism in in arts as a whole not just in film like the point of expressionism is that essentially you're expressing internal emotions through external things so for instance if if your mind is like really twisted you might see a building and in expressionism that building would be really twisted like the most famous uh, expressionist painting is that one of like the man screaming on the bridge and you know where his face is like all wobbly it's like a squiggly line 
it's it's sort of like that same sort of concept where like the the ex- the whole scenery expresses his, his his internal state of mind, and German expressionism in particular focused on these like really um, almost like mentally unstable dark characters, and so a lot of the films like had these really like sharp geometrical angles and they really played a lot with with high contrast and shadows like in particular a film like Nosferatu super famous for for how it used the shadows uh, M as well which is actually not a silent film but it also is super famous for that German expressionism high contrast usage of shadows as well mm-hmm. definitely uh, yeah America stole both Lang and Murnau at a certain mm. point um, so yeah and then they uh not just them as well. Yeah, they stole a lot of European directors. I mean, Germany in the 30s was definitely a time where people were fleeing. Um, German Expressionism was kind of this period in the 20s, and I guess spilled over to the 30s, but it really, you can see its influence yeah. still today. Someone like Tim Burton, who uh, all of his, a lot of his sets are, if you ever notice his funky-looking sets, oh, you yeah. trace them back to like the exaggerated sets and decor of of this german expressionist films yeah uh, and obviously not yeah. just in burden like later this year obviously the remake of the nosferatu the silent film is coming out and it's directed by robert eggers the, the guy who did the witch uh lighthouse who the lighthouse in itself is super super influenced by uh german expressionism but also he did the northman and he's making like a supposedly a quite quite accurate remake of the film i presume it's going to be a sound film it would be i would be quite shocked if he just comes out of a silent film but yeah it's supposedly a very very accurate true to source material adaptation but yeah i think in terms of german expressionism itself on on the one hand it is it is a silent film movement so i know it does require quite a lot of buy-in from a modern audience to actually engage with it because a lot of people are just kind of put off by that fact oh you know it's old it looks old uh, you know there's no no spoken language it's just music but i actually think out of all the silent film not even movements like all all silent films i think this is one of the easiest ones to get into maybe even the easiest one and i think generally i would i would put it as as high as b tier which is fun to explore and the big reason for that is that I think, as as Daniel mentioned, it's very style forward, but in a slightly different way from the French New Wave, in that the style is super easy to pick up on, even for someone who isn't like super serious about film. Like a lot of people, their first experience with German Expressionism is just watching a film like Cabinet of Dr. Caligari on Halloween, because it's a horror film, and they see it. And uh, the thing also about German Expressionism is that it's it's... Yeah, I'm pretty sure it is the smallest movement here because there's only like 20 or 30, 30 German Expressionism films that we have. There were more made, but a lot of them were also lost because, you know, especially during the Second World War, a lot of that film just didn't survive. So like, for instance, Der Golem, there were like seven Der Golem films, but only one survived. And it's actually a prequel of all those, all those ever Golem films. Uh, but I think because... Yeah, very tragic. Yeah. It's it's certainly even a film like Metropolis to this day. It's I'm pretty sure it isn't it isn't fully finished. There's still like a couple of scenes that are missing from it, unfortunately. Yeah, um, I actually I don't I haven't peeked at your sheet, but I also had the same grade as as B. Hmm. The thing about silent films that is a bit deceptive is it's like obviously it's the oldest type of film. It's yeah, these were films made almost or more than a hundred years ago and. 
you might think these are the most dated films. Like, how could anyone you know, new to film really watch these? If you actually sit down and watch, like, the people who are new to silent films, like this, silent films, I think, are really surprisingly pretty accessible. Like, at least the way I, I found them. Um, and for, like, the Zoomer no-attention-span generation, <laughs> I yeah. think uh, a lot of them move pretty quickly and have quite a lot going on, especially visually. Like, they're, because of, you know, the lack of sound... Um, you know, they really focused on making these, uh, you know, being heavily visually stylized and pushing the boundaries kind of in the types of techniques used um, for visual storytelling. And I just think if you like creativity on screen uh, and, you know, a lot of these are not, like the plot's kind of important, but like not, it's, it's more about the visual experience, I yeah. would say. Like, the yeah. appeal for something like Metropolis or Nosferatu or Caligari. Like, I feel like that's what makes them classics. And um, I, I just think they're a lot more accessible than, you know, a lot of other films. Especially the, I would say, like, the 30s through 50s period of, like, Hollywood and uh, cinema is is a bit, I'd say, even tougher than silent films to get into. But that's just, that's just my opinion. Um, I think... I'm a big uh, backer of silent films. Yeah, and um, even even like even if you look at like the German expressionism, which is like technically it's no longer part of expressionism, which is like a film like M, which is just a a thriller. It has a sound and everything, and it has a lot of those characteristics. It's just a super. It, it is totally like a modern thriller. Like it, it's almost it's almost like mind blowing that this film was made in like 1930 31, if I'm not mistaken. But yeah, another another big thing with expressionism is that I think one of the big joys about actually exploring a movement is that then you get to see all the influence that it had on films when you watch like some some of the other films and i think with german expressionism it's super noticeable because it's it's so style forward uh you can watch as little as like one or two films and you'll notice that influence in a ton of ton of million other works especially since as as daniel mentioned as well a lot of these figures also migrated to uh, to America, so like Murnau, Lang, they made some American films as well, but also guys like uh, Carl Freund, who was the cinematographer for Metropolis, he then moved on to America, where he directed the the uh, some some of the horror films like The Mummy, uh, that uh, America came out of with the, with it in the 1930s, but also like obviously film noir massively influenced by German expressionism and a lot of those other like sort of 30s and 40s American movements and some like modern directors like Tim Burton as well. Yeah, it's a, it's a good point about noir and and subsequent films as well. Like, I think the visual innovations of the German expressionist movement just are are really important, and you could you could trace them throughout film history. Uh, anything that uses light and shadow in in cool ways, you could probably link back to expressionism in some way. Mm. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, why don't we go, if you want to go across the globe, I don't have a segue for this, so we can just go straight into our, yeah, our first here. first Asian movement here. Yeah. First Asian movement. Yeah, we have here the Taiwanese New Wave. Mm -hmm. Also a slightly dubious term, but it's, you know, people still use it. Uh, true, true. So, yeah, um, what's your familiarity with the Taiwanese New Wave? So my so I, I mentioned that I studied in university all of these movements except one, and this was the one that I didn't have any university familiarity with. So I mostly just explored it actually quite recently, like a year, 
last year and like a year a year prior is when I really sort of familiarized with the people in this movement, which is uh, directors like Edward Yang, Hao Xiao Shen, and Timing Lang, and films in particular like A Brighter Summer Day that people know about, Yi Yi, Rebels of the Neon God, A City of Sadness, etc. And these uh, films in particular, like, if, if someone hasn't uh, necessarily heard of or seen of these filmmakers, they might be familiar with, with the Hong Kong filmmaker Wong Kai Wai. And these films are a bit similar to him. They're not as stylistic or visually flashy, but they have that same sort of thematic focus on people who are sort of alienated by, by the modern world, modern society. And so a, a lot of the films are about sort of themes of loneliness, alienation, and that sort of internal internal sadness of the modern world, essentially. Yeah, so I, I mean, to trace it back to Taiwan's history, it's, I mean, there's, Taiwan went through a lot of traumatic events. Um, mm. Like, you know, following World War II, like it, it, was, it was under Japanese rule um, for a while, and then it eventually was liberated from that, but then was, uh, you know, taken over by China. Uh, and then it, from like 49 through 87, it was under martial law um, uh, by the nationalist government of China. And there were, you know, obviously the people were not very free and, you know, the liberties for filmmakers to do things were, were pretty poor um, yeah. until 87 in particular. Um, but yeah, the so there, there was a lot of kind of trauma, a lot of problems of society and people's lives that I think uh, were resonant and filmmakers wanted to touch upon uh, when it started. It started in 82, I think, was the kind of official year. Uh, there's this film called In Our Time. Uh, it was just this compendium film by Edward Yang and a few other filmmakers I'm not familiar with. Um, hmm. And then eventually, yeah, there's uh, there's kind of like, I guess, multiple waves with this uh, that's kind of lumped together as like, I guess, a single one. But yeah, Simon Liang is, I guess, kind of known as following uh, Edward Yang and Ho Shashen and a few others. Um, so, but those three are kind of the biggest names, uh, I think I'd say from Taiwan at this time. Yeah. And they all depicted, they're all like, this is, again, we're now going uh, away from heavy, heavy stylization into realistic uh, depictions of people, yeah. uh, social reality, uh, looks at like, what, what are the common people going through? Hmm. Um, and then once once martial law was lifted in 87 then like you know even more taboo topics were explored things like how you know taiwan's oppression under china you know they mm, yeah. made a trilogy of, of films that dug into uh taiwan's modern history and you know uh yeah the kind of traumatic events that people under were subjected to and uh, the country was subjected to um in those times so yeah um very different than German expressionism, uh, and I, I think I'm kind of interesting. We've we've done this is like uh, I guess the first more quote unquote realistic movement hmm. uh, we're, we're doing, but we haven't done the the original uh, realistic movement. Um, we'll we'll get to that. But um, <laughs> how would you grade this wave, this new wave or movement? I should say. <laughs> so I think interestingly, although it is one of the more modern movements here, and it's it's one of my favorite movements here. I, I really love this uh, the films from this movement, but I think a big problem with it is, especially for like someone who's a bit newer to film, is that they do require a lot of buy-in from the audience member. 
like that anecdote I told with Wells earlier in 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 the podcast. Like these films do certainly linger for a lot of time on certain shots, and you have to really sort of care about those shots for them for them to sort of mean something to you. So they do definitely require a lot of patience. And because of that, even though even though I do like this movement, I think this for me has to go to one of the two bottom tiers, either a, a safe for later or a do not start with this movement. Because I just think f- for a modern audience, the problem they're going to have is that even though some of these films are certainly more accessible than others, like there's certainly a risk that uh, a lot of them might just leave you leave you bored if you come into them with the sort of wrong mindset and you expect something like really really exciting and flashy whereas these films are certainly very slow and methodical mm-hmm. yeah um so did you agree did you put it in d uh i think i think i would lean towards e actually i think this is this is a oh, sort wow. of i think if if, if this is your first <laughs> This, if this is your first movement that's, that you sort of start with, I think you you, you you run the risk of potentially getting getting burnt out or put off older, older films as a whole. And I think actually if you do save it for later and explore it once you have maybe built up some familiarity with particularly European films that are also slightly slower, films uh, by people like uh, Antonioni, for instance, and then go into this movement, I think you will get significantly more more out of it. Uh, than than you did if you just sort of dived into mm-hmm. it head first. Yeah, I I didn't go that <laughs> that far down, but I, I mean it's that's I fair. I, I'd also be happy to put it in D. I'm, I was just sort of like between those two, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was actually between C and D. Um, okay. And I think you, you you make a good point. It is these are I'd say all three of those figures. Um, they're very slow. Lots of long shots. Um, very easy to get bored for, especially for the zoomer uh, type or like just a small attention span type of people. Uh, but I, the appeal of these films, um, and especially Yang in particular, those three names, are the really humanist uh, characters, mm. the stories, the um, the themes. Like these are some of you. Like you're not gonna find really. Uh, yeah. Maybe you can, but it'll be hard pressed to find more realistic and humanist depictions of of people and uh kind of especially in urban settings like i at least for me it was a very resonant these are it's a very resonant movement for me in particular yeah and i think i watched the this was probably the first one i watched of this this movement mm. and I, I, I don't i def, don't think i started with it uh this was definitely not a movement i started with but it was you know it was among maybe the first first of many films i was watching yeah um and it 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 bowled me over like it it was you know it it convinced me that that uh i I think i would i would like a lot more of what yang is in particular had to offer um yeah i I think if you're if you're gonna start with this movement edward yang would probably be the best starting spot out of these three out of these three sort of directors particular film like yi yi it certainly has a lot more a lot of times people, this is like a screenwriting pet peeve, a lot of t- times people say this thing, oh, that film has no plot, which sort of like doesn't make sense because what plot actually is, is just anything happening in a film is, is, is plot. And what they often mean is that a film doesn't have plot points, which is like a big event in a film that sort of 
changes changes the course of events. So these a lot of these films are sort of films that don't have a lot of plot points. But Edward Yang's films, I don't think really. Well, so, some of them do. Like I think Taipei Story certainly doesn't have a lot of plot points. But Yi Yi is 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 quite an engaging film, even though it is certainly long. Yeah, I I don't think it's very plot heavy. It's more like situation based, I'd say. Um, and these films have a lot of dialogue, especially Yang's films. Um, and it's the the kind of the real poetic quality of of Yi Yi, A Brighter Summer Day, is in these characters and uh, how they navigate this world and mm. the other people in it. So, yeah, um, I think. D is probably a good compromise. Yeah, I think um, I, I'm happy with D. Like I said, I was between those two. And that means now we have yeah. we have a film in nearly every tier except the bottom one. We'll see if we can if we do end up putting something in that bottom tier eventually. <laughs> right, but the next movement that we have is Japanese Golden Age, which is primarily a 1950s movement that comprises of people like Ozu, Kurosawa, Kobayashi, and of course films like Seven Samurai, Tokyo Story or the Human Condition Trilogy. And it's actually a movement I'm not too familiar with. Like, I've seen Tokyo Story, I've seen a couple of 50s Kurosawa films, and I think I've seen one Kobayashi film. But other than that, Japanese fin- cinema is one of, like, my my bigger blind spots. Like, I just haven't seen all that many Golden Age or or uh, even later Japanese films, to be honest. So I'll, I'll let you take it away on this one. <laughs> you got to rectify that. Um, I mean I I wouldn't say I I, there's probably a lot of Japanese films like I I wouldn't say I'm super knowledgeable about Japanese films in in general but I have seen quite a bit of the golden age era because I I do really like this period Um, so the golden age um, this followed World War II um, and as we know from history Japan was pretty devastated by World War II but Surprisingly, their studios were kept mostly intact, and they continued to produce films, even just starting from 1945 onward. Um, and they they were occupied by the Allies, um, and so th- they did enforce restrictions on the type of subjects that were, uh, you know, they were able to depict in film. So anything that kind of promoted feudalism was was prohibited. So like a lot of period dramas only came a bit later. Um, Really, the first one that broke through was was Rashomon in 1950. Um, it, it really brought international attention to Japanese cinema. It won the Golden Lion at the, the Venice Film Festival in 51. Um, it really just brought new export markets um, for of Japanese cinema to the West, and uh, that's really when when yeah the 50s onwards is when you know all these the directors you name made some of their their best work, um, and so. Mm. Kurosawa, you know, the, the director of Rashomon, I, I'd say uh, he's definitely, like, if I had to rank all of the directors just forgetting movements, Kurosawa's probably, like, maybe the first or second director I'd recommend to someone new to film. Mm, um, yeah, for sure. Uh, I should say older foreign director. Um, because he, his films, uh, uh, some people criticize him for this, but they have kind of a Western sensibility, even though he was oh, yeah. Japanese. Uh, he made uh, like samurai films, which I think a lot of them are pretty action-packed and mm, uh, sure. incredibly engaging for uh, even for modern audiences. Um, and then he even made like uh, when he made contemporary dramas, something like Akiru or uh, High and Low. Those are 
really, let's say, like emotional films that I think I think modern audiences still really respond to and love. Um, but then when you get to other figures like Mizoguchi and Ozu, those those guys are a little more difficult, and uh, you know they're definitely more, I'd say, quote unquote Japanese. Um, you know, I, uh, I I just mean in in the type of subjects they were depicting. Mm. Um, uh, you know, Mizoguchi's films were, I'd say both of them actually had had a lot more long takes, uh, a lot more uh, were about, kind of, Mizoguchi in particular was about like critiques of feudalism focused on like yeah. the condition of women within the social order. Um, and Ozu's were about like lower middle class families. He made 54 films and they were all like basically very, like almost the same, almost the same film. Yeah, uh, you could think of them as like a single large film with the like one subject, which is like <laughs> about ordinary lives of ordinary people. Um, very minimalist style, uh, and yeah, they were just all shot within like the confines of a Japanese house. Usually, very like very low angle takes, um, meeting people like because people are sitting on the floor in basically all these films as as in Japanese houses. So you yeah. kind of meet them at their eye level, which is pretty interesting and. Uh, is a very very distinctive, but yeah, those those two those two guys are definitely are a lot. I'd say a lot harder to get into than than Kurosawa, who I would say is almost almost a surefire uh, a director for someone new to film. Uh, oh yeah, to like. So that brings me to my overall grade of a B. Okay. Um, because I think Kurosawa would, would be like a a plus. Um, Ozu Mizoguchi, I think you could you could really like them. Um, they definitely rely more. I guess they have a little bit more in common with the Taiwanese new wave, um, especially Ozu, uh, as just like longer, longer takes focused more on these characters, their relationships, how they navigate the particular worlds they're in. Um, so, yeah, uh, I think it balances out to around a B. But how about you? I guess you said you didn't have a lot of familiarity. I don't know if you gave a grade. Yeah, I think I think if, if I would have, I, I didn't really give give a grade. I think I'm just, just happy to go along with uh, with what uh, you decided. But I think if I were to give a grade, it probably would be like uh, like a C. I think, which is can be challenging, because I think um, yeah, like Kurosawa, as you mentioned, is I think very accessible for for Western audiences. He is truly one of the one of the great screenwriters and put together very very compelling and interesting stories, like Seven Samurai in particular super engaging film and also like he also did like a bunch of western adaptations like a bunch of shakespeare shakespeare adaptations even in this time period and films like that so i think he's he's super accessible and easy to to engage with i think uh, the only reason i'd have for c is because that sort of reflects my experience like i really liked some kurosawa films watched a couple ozu films didn't really connect with them uh, too much so that's just sort of like my experience has been hit and miss and i think the only other thing i can think of is that i think maybe for someone with very modern sensibilities it can take a little bit of time to to adapt to japanese cinema because i think more than almost any other cinema it has a very distinct look and feel in the sense that i think japanese performances are almost like fundamentally different to how performances are handled in the west and i think that could maybe put off some people who are, aren't really used to it and it's it certainly like when i was watching seven samurai it certainly took a little bit of time for me to sort of 
get used to and sort of uh, buy into the film. Oh, okay, so that's 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 how they sort of express themselves. Okay, that's that's how action is done. Okay, this all makes sense now. Now I'm sort of on board and on the train and happy to go along with it. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I'd say with the, in the example of like those period dramas, like Kurosawa's and Mizoguchi's films, they are informed a lot by Japanese theater, and those, those performances are quite theatrical. Um, but Ozu, on the contrary, is very like the opposite. So it's mm. you get kind of both sides of that. Like you get very expressive, and then you'll get like very yeah. quiet, very subtle. Um, so yeah, I, how about we? put it right behind we put it behind german expressionist on the b tier yeah makes um, sense yeah okay, okay. We, we can jump to the next movement which is we're going back in time again jumping back into europe after two two asian movements in a row and we're moving to italian neorealism uh, but primarily so italian neorealism is one of those where i mentioned that definitions can be a bit contentious here like some people believe Italian Euroism only lasted like one or two years. Like it started in 44 and by 46 it was over. Like all the ideals of neorealism films were sort of dead by then. Others believe that it only ended in like 1952 and it lasted a lot longer. They even incorporate some some Italian pink neorealism films into like the neorealism movement, which is essentially like the comedy branch of neorealism. So, for those who don't know, neorealism is mainly comprises of people like Rossellini, uh, whom Federico Fellini famously wrote some screenplays for, uh, Vittorio De Sica, Lucino Visconti, and some other names that sort of really, really started the movement, and films like Bicycle Thieves, super, super famous and known film, Rome Open City, La Terra Trema, and others. And what this movement really did, so, during the years when Mussolini was in power, he essentially created a a film movement known as Italian realism. And it was essentially just a propaganda movement. Like it essentially showed how, how great Italy was under Mussolini and what these filmmakers did is essentially when when Second World War ended and Italy was left in like absolute devastation, total ruins, they essentially showed the new realism, the actual new reality of, of what Mussolini's government did now that they were in sort of uh, under the confines of censorship. And they shot all of these films with non-actors. If some of the films had actors, usually they only played like very, very minor parts. They shot all of them in location, in particular on location, like the ruins of Italy, like the big cities among like the collapsing buildings, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the I guess it's a good follow-up to the Japanese Golden Age because it was basically kind of arrived of similar circumstances following yeah. World War II. Um, Italy actually surrendered pretty early, so that was actually a pretty good move for their film industries because it left it left all their facilities intact. Mm. Um, and yeah, as you're talking about Mussolini, he actually made this. He had this. Um, I think it was a school called Centro Sperimentale, um, mm. and basically all the major figures of the neorealist uh, movement studied there, and they eventually like rejected the stagey artificial style of, of Italian yeah. films at that time. They were called Telefono Bianco films. Hmm. Uh, these were like very, like kind of Hollywood-esque, um, you know, comedies, uh, artificial, like, you know, they, I haven't seen any in particular, but uh, these were just the popular Italian comedy films at the time. But they, yeah. they instead pursued like a very Marxist aesthetic of like everyday life. Um, so, yeah, the Visconti, De Sica, uh, Rossellini, the three of the major guys who mm. were 
kind of the forefronts of this movement. Um, and then Rome Open City was, yeah, the, the first that really brought international attention. Yeah. Um, even though Visconti's um, film uh, was a translate to Obsession, I think, um, in 1942 was, was the mm. first, but it was, it was suppressed. Um, but yeah, a lot of, hom- like, the hallmarks of the movement are, are, of the movement are apparent in every film which are, like, uh, it used non-professional actors um, focused on, like, ordinary people, caught yeah. up in pretty contemporary events, very documentary-like kind of, uh, and and all of them had like a uh, post-recorded soundtrack, um, shot on location, yeah. used natural lighting, etc. Um, yeah, again, another rejection of like Hollywood uh, in hmm. terms of their <laughs> narrative conventions, and was I kn- I know we said the French New Wave was at least I said it was the most uh, influential, but this was kind of like the root of like True, basically yeah. every other post World War II movement. Um, uh, or m- a lot of them. Uh, yeah, I mean, this directly inspired that, French New Wave. It was one of the big influences mm-hmm. for it. Yeah. Yeah, and even ones that were kind of responses to neorealism, uh, I, I still say that, c- that counts as an influence. But yeah, this oh, yeah. is an influence to so many world cinema movements as well. Um, so, yeah, and I guess just to put a bow on the historical context, this ended in like the 50s. Um, because Italy actually began to prosper um, due to things like the Marshall Plan, um, things like that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, what was your overall grade? So initially, when I was like sort of when I when I first put it down on my list, I thought this was like almost like a slam dunk for E tier, which is do not start with this movement. <laughs> but then the more I thought about it, the more I thought actually like. Loki, this kind of has some bangers in, in it. Like I think a film like Bicycle Thieves, it's almost like the a 40s a 40 sort of equivalent of, of a film like 12 angry men like it's a very simple story very heartfelt story very easy to enjoy for for sort of like anyone even like a modern one modern viewer it's so sort of simple and stripped down that it will it'll likely move you even if you do not sort of have the the patience for older films but then also films like rome open city this is this is going to be some big spoiler so if you do not want to hear to skip skip ahead like 30 seconds but Rome Open City was, uh, as as far as I know, the first film who did that, which did that film where they cast a famous famous actress in one of the key roles, and then the actress got killed like halfway through the film, which was like a super shocking like plot. Because we're like, whoa, you totally don't expect. You think like, oh, she's actually the star of the show. The film is about her, and then she just suddenly ha- dies halfway through the film. It's like this crazy crazy plot twist that you totally don't don't see coming. And I think like almost due to their simplicity these films these films are quite easy to to enjoy i still want to go above like a c tier because i think it's not a very bingeable movement like if you decide oh yeah i'm gonna deep dive neorealism and you watch like five films in a week uh i think you might, <laughs> i don't know i think you might get a bit exhausted because they are also quite similar to one another in some like they all deal with like pretty similar similar themes and are pretty similar in how they were made so i don't think it's a super like bingeable movement but the history around it's super interesting the influence of it is also like really interesting if you're sort of into that aspect of the movements of learning more about them learning about the figures uh, that come from them etc and i think the the films are actually like quite easy to enjoy for the most part so you're telling me Wes craven wasn't the first to kill off his you know, <laughs> leading star of a film that's interesting um Yes, uh, I I put it in the C tier, um, and that's because, well, for one, 
like I think this is undeniably a movement everyone should see. Hmm. Uh, probably earlier on than later. Um, at least like one or two films. You don't have to oh, yeah. binge it. Uh, I do think. Yeah, these are pretty. Uh, I haven't I haven't seen any that I've that are I would call light. These are all like pretty serious, sad, dramatic yeah. films. Uh, and uh, sometimes maybe even too dramatic for modern sensibilities uh, mm. you know um but i mean i i think you know as we're talking about influence um and i i mean i don't want to detract from the films at all these are a lot of them are still very powerful i would say um bicycle thieves um uh you know rome open city they all have yeah. real moments of of um just uh just a, there's a point in the film like and I'd say like all the films I've seen, I've only seen a small handful, but and like basically every film, there, there's a point of like just pure like a gut punch, basically. Like oh, you yeah. feel, oh man, like I like I don't think I've weeped at any of them, but like I could probably imagine mm-hmm. myself in the right circumstances just just crying to some of the things I'm seeing. Um, yeah, I, I think they actually but, uh, be- benefit from a similar thing that some Brisson films benefit from, which is the fact that they use non-actors, and essentially what happens when the actor doesn't express a certain emotion and it's almost like repressed within them the audience essentially gets to gets to internalize and experience that emotion that isn't isn't expressed by by the actor and that's actually something Brisson spoke about in his in his not autobiography but how like his his book or like his thoughts on filmmaking etc like that's like something a deliberate choice he made for that specific reason and I think some of these films mm-hmm. also benefit because of that. Like certainly a film like, like if you're gonna watch any neorealism film, certainly I think Bicycle Thieves is a really, really good starting point. Yeah. So, should we put it in the C tier? Yeah, I'm happy with C tier. Above or below French New Wave? Ooh, that's a tough one. Where, where are you leaning on this one? Um, I'd probably put it below French New Wave. I was gonna say because uh, I, I was just thinking back on my my experience in university, and I was thinking like not just of myself, but like other people. And I feel like on average, more students that I studied with enjoyed the one neorealism film that we watched than mm-hmm. the than the one mm-hmm. French New Wave film that we checked out for the lecture. <laughs> but I'm also yeah, happy I, to put it below it as well. That's the thing is like if you only watch one French New Wave film, it could be very hit or miss. Oh yeah, for sure. But, like if you do watch one of the you know realist classics it's like hard to go wrong i think they're hmm. all you know a lot of them considered yeah i think it is it is an older movement so it makes sense to, to realistically put it below french new wave okay all right so we're at our last movement for mm-hmm. this episode um what is this last movement so the last movement is another new wave and this is the czech new wave it also started in the 60s, so a bit later than the, than the French New Wave, and it's famous for filmmakers such as Uri Hirsch, Vera Chitilova, and Opsi Milos Forman, who then went on to America and made a bunch of films, a bunch of like quite famous films. Uh, but the films in the actual Czech New Wave that most people would know is films like The Cremator, Daisies, Closely Watched Trains, Valerie and Her Week of Wonders, and a bunch of other films. Yeah, this was a period, like, stop me if you've heard this before, but it was a period of a lot of formal experimentation from filmmakers <laughs> who were rebelling against a, you know, a large system of some sort. Um, and, yeah, really just doing this, a lot of the times with not much budget, not much experience, um, just kind of oh, making yeah. stuff. 
um, yeah, so, you know, the, just the historical context, um, uh, this was a period where, you know, Czech, I should say, we sh- this is Czechoslovakia at the time. Yes. Um, yeah, so they were under the rule of, uh, you know, the Soviet Republic, the Soviet Union. Yeah, yeah so, for, so for people who don't know, essentially, they weren't technically part of part of the Soviet Union in a sense that they weren't uh, absorbed into the actual country, like some of the other nations, like, say, the Baltic states. Uh, but they were part of the Warsaw Pact and were effectively ruled by the Soviet Union, even though, like, in theory, they weren't, but they actually were. That's why uh, a thing like the Prague Spring, which was essentially a revolution when they tried to sort of free themselves from, from Soviet control, was, was a thing. Uh, they were effectively ruled by, by Soviet Union. And that is very much reflected in a lot of these, in a lot of these films. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, this, the, they were under a lot of oppression at the time. And film was used as this political tool to basically fight back against um, the things that they were kind of forbidden to do. So, I mean, the filmmakers were in a lot of trouble with the censors, um, and a lot of them, uh, a lot of the films got banned, and some of the filmmakers got exiled at certain points as well. Um, Yeah, the Prague Spring was kind of the collapse of this new wave and of Mm. kind of the... The freedom, the Czechoslovak uh, film industry. So in, in 1968, um, like there was a period of reformation actually happening, um, where there was uh, some resistance, and um, you know they there's a new president Alexander Dubček, I think. Um, yeah. In 68, so you know reforms were happening and censors were starting to be lifted um, until the Soviets invaded and in later that year in 68, and then that's yeah. when. That's when there's like a swift banning of like basically every new wave film. Um, the whole film industry reorganized, and then uh, guys like Foreman and Nemec uh, all were exiled um, uh, and found found a at least Foreman was able to find uh, you know a country elsewhere in the United States to eventually work in. Hmm. Um, but yeah, the films themselves have a lot of formal experimentation. Uh, you know, it's a good pairing with the French New Wave because, especially the use of editing and and oh yeah, movies, yeah, they they're very uh, crazy. Some of the editing techniques and uh, you know, uh, a lot of them, I guess, how would you even describe them? It's like they're they're pieced together in a way that is uh, really kind of frenetic, but it it's kind of like just. Uh, like when you watch some, a lot of these films are very short. They're like an hour, 20 hour, 30 minutes uh, long. But within that time, like contains so many different cuts and uh, every sort of technique. I don't know. How would you describe these these films? Yeah, sort of. I made a very similar note as you is that the biggest focus on, on these films, I think, is on the editing. Like a film like The Cremator and Daisies in particular, super groundbreaking in terms of the editing techniques used. And that's almost like the, like certainly they have very sort of creative sets and costumes as well, but that's like the the main sort of crux where the creativity of the, a lot of these films is expressed, and I think that's also part of the reason why I personally put it, this movement lower on my tier list. I think a problem that you have is to get the most out of the Czech New Wave, 
it does kind of require quite a bit of context sometimes of the of the time uh, when the when the film was made the circumstances that uh, Czechoslovakia was in uh, the circumstances of the Soviet Union as a whole what was like in the Soviet Union because one aspect of these films as well is that they're very comedic in a very sort of like black humor way where they're sort of making fun of certain aspects of of the Soviet Soviet life and the hypocrisy within it and because of that I think it can be it can be a little challenging to engage with like you really have to care about things like editing and really care enough about the history behind the Czech New Wave to really sort of delve delve into the circumstances of the time and that's why I think it can be it can be a little tricky for new people to navigate this movement interesting i was a bit higher on this uh i i guess part of it was i did actually show daisies to a group of like non-cinema people um although they they agreed to it mm. so it wasn't like i was just subjecting them to art house films yeah um, <laughs> which, <laughs> hey guys I have a fun yeah. engaging film yeah. <laughs> yeah, daisies I, mean, I don't know if they'd be my friends for that much longer. but um no they they found it really interesting and i think mm. they, they really liked it um I, I think something like daisies uh is pretty i would say pretty accessible to mm. well not everyone but to, to some people who, who really appreciate things like editing um I, you know, I, I I go back always to that attention span, and I feel like, uh, <laughs> especially films like Daisies, um, maybe a few others. Yeah, maybe like Valerie and A Week of Wonders also. But I mean, some of these do feel still pretty fresh, and oh yeah, like they're just kind of a flurry of at least Daisies is a flurry of like cuts and colors and and uh, madness, just kind of silliness. Um, no plot really just just vibes so <laughs> i was going between a c or a b to be honest but i, I okay. can lean downward if uh, uh agree I, on a c. I, i'll be honest i did put it in d i thought this 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 is a movement that is that is best enjoyed as a as as when it is like sort of saved later but i, I do get where you're coming from because similarly to german expressionism a lot of the style is also pretty uh, pretty out there and it isn't like impossible to become like you need to be like some turbo cinephile to notice the genius of these films no it's like pretty pretty apparent that the cremator has like really crazy and creative editing for uh, for people who even aren't super into into films yeah i was probably i was probably a little too high on that that daisy showing but um <laughs> yeah we could put it in c okay okay uh above Below new wave, French new wave, or Italian neorealism. How do we how do we rank these three? Oh, I I, t- I would put I would probably put it below those two. I think that the average the average film I, again it's really hard to determine what the actual average film is in any of these movements. But I think the average French new wave or Italian neorealism movement might have a more like a story that has slightly broader appeal than a Czech new wave films like. I wouldn't say a lot of those have like a very a very broad appeal films like they do sort of appeal to a specific niche and that specific niche absolutely loves them. So if you are in that niche, like if you want to check out like one film and see if you're sort of into it, then yeah, by by all means, but whether you like it as a whole, it's it's a, it's a bit sort of more up in the air and it might be a thing that you might appreciate it more when you do get a taste of other movements and you sort of learn a bit more about film editing and start to appreciate it a bit more as well. I should also say fans of Christopher Nolan's Tenet should check out the film Happy End by uh, Lipsky. <laughs> uh, that's how it's pronounced. 
it's <laughs> has a very similar uh, concept and conceit. So, uh, yeah. Um, so, okay. I think I can recap all of our tiers. Let's see. Okay. So, from top down, in A tier, we have New Hollywood, the very top yep. alone. Everyone would B love this. B tier, we have, yeah. B tier, we have German Expressionism and followed by a Japanese Golden Age. In C tier, we have French New Wave, Italian Neorealism, and then Czech, Czechoslovakia New Wave. Hmm. And then D tier, we have the Taiwanese New Wave. Sounds good to me. Pretty good distribution. Yeah, but let's see. Anything else you wanted to say about these movements? How much you get out of exploring a movement sort of does largely depend on you as well. Like how much are you, how much patience are you willing to give it? How much are you able to sort of not necessarily put up with, but how, how much uh, disbelief are you willing to suspend and how much sort of are you willing to put forward yourself in terms of not only watching the films but also doing a bit of you know research like looking up some of these names because like the more the more you know about uh, let's say French New Wave the more you're actually going to get out of the films in it as well I'd say mm -hmm. yeah I do think some some patience is required on the viewers part um, and not just with one film but probably at least a small handful this is kind of how I still watch or at least I try to but I, I always enjoy mm -hmm. just spending like I don't know couple weeks maybe even more on like a yeah. one particular movement or country and then just just kind of seeing some of the films and within that um some people watch by like director or like i don't know or just mm. whatever they they want to but I, I like having a sort of structure where um you get like a movement um or a region of the world time place uh to guide you mm. um, now, here's a question yes. uh, that, that i was wondering so obviously there's a bunch of movements that we didn't cover and I was wondering just as like a little teaser for like maybe if we do a sequel potentially and cover some more movements do you think there is a movement that would be more accessible than new Hollywood cinema um no <laughs> oh okay <laughs> the, uh, I'm trying to look at our I'm looking at our list uh, I don't think I'd put any there may be one or I, I don't know if there is more than one that put in the A tier. Um, okay, wow. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's 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 really difficult to like, especially when you get into film. It's like no, hmm. nothing is going to appeal to everyone. And oh yeah, I don't know. I always, I'm always more dubious on what appeals to people than maybe hmm. other people are. So, yeah, like, I don't know. I I think that <laughs> A tier would be pretty small. Um, if I did every single movement. Yeah, I think there is one for me that could dethrone it in the future mm. i'm not gonna say what it is now i'll save that as like a suspense piece for for people who, who are listening to look forward to it eventually when, when we might we might cover it and talk about that yeah, movement as next, well tune in next year when we <laughs> yeah. talk about this again. Um, okay. yeah shall we Moving. shall we cap off the episode and do our classic end of episode recommendations yeah why don't you go ahead and lead us off Go ahead. Okay, well, for the first two episodes, I uh, was a bit rebellious and opted to not recommend any films. And I wanted to keep that trend going, but I actually didn't <laughs> didn't read anything super exciting since, since the previous two episodes. So this time I actually do have a film, and it's a film I watched recently. It's a film called White Buffalo, which is a horror western from the 70s starring Charles Bronson. So a couple, a couple of the people we know have been doing this uh, massive Charles Bronson marathon where they watch like all of the 
Charles Bronson films, and now they've sort of been rewatching some of the some of the best films from that marathon. And White Buffalo was one of them. And I joined when they when they saw it, and I I really loved that film. Like I think that just really appealed to my sensibilities. Like I think the mixture of horror and western is just it's right up my alley. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, I think those people that like the the Bronson films uh, appreciate the shout out. So <laughs> <laughs> they better. Um, <laughs> uh great i actually i'm not I'm not familiar with this film so. it is like a very obscure film to be fair but if if you do like 70s like western or 70s action films do check it out like, i think it's one of one of the better bronzes for sure mm. yes. for me i one day i'll recommend a book i just haven't been reading much lately um <laughs> uh i will recommend another film i went to a film festival um out last week the week before um Mm-mm. and i only saw a few films i wasn't there for too long but i, I wanted to catch this one film in particular um it's radu jude's uh, do not expect too much from the end of the world okay um so radu jude is a romanian filmmaker and i've only this was the first film of his i saw and then i, I watched one more of his films kind of recently uh this was quite unlike other like I, I don't want to say too much about it i because part of the joy in it was how surprising and unexpected it was mm, yeah um a lot of especially in the filmmaking the, the formless techniques used the uh, anyone who's familiar with structuralism the kind of the experimental film movement um which is about how like filmmakers instead of creating like a narrative you know cin- based cinema it's 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 experimental, so it's really just based around uh, filmmaking techniques, um, and that's the structure of the film, basically. Uh, and there, there, I wouldn't say this is a structuralist film, but there are parts of it that could mm. constitute that. That's all I'll say. Um, okay. Yeah, it's a pretty wild film uh, set in contemporary Romania, um, ostensibly about a woman interviewing victims of a workplace of workplace accidents. Um, I won't say exactly what happens from there. Um, oh, is it a documentary for you then? No, but oh, okay. it has doc. It uh, there are flourishes that have real life. I guess I should say. Hmm. Um, yeah, it's 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 a pretty strange, weird film, and it had quite a. There's one de- detour towards I guess maybe the two thirds or end of the film uh, where it's, it turns into completely like a silent film for <laughs> a little bit, and then audience members that i was watching the film with like just started discussing and mocking the film and and leaving it was it was really quite surreal pretty entertaining actually uh so so yeah it's i mean definitely not a we're talking about accessibility this whole episode this is definitely not a a or b or maybe even c tier film um would highly though recommend for anyone who wants to watch something new that's feels completely unlike anything you've seen before Mm, that sounds interesting well, I think that's going to be it from us this week. We are going to be back in about a couple of weeks. If you listen to this and you enjoyed the episode, give us a five-star review, share it with your friends, all that fun stuff. We'll, and yeah, we'll return with some more, some more episodes soon. Yes, thank you for watching, and we'll hope to release some more content soon. 